are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hi, Faith family. My name is Burçak. Merry Christmas to everyone. Merhaba, mutluluklar herkese. Uh, I'm going to read the scripture today in Turkish, but I want a little bit introduce about myself first. I'm from Turkey. I miss my uh, country, I miss my family, I miss my uh, delicious Turkish foods, I miss my friends, so... <laughs> and I have two wonderful children. I have six years old, uh, her name is Miss Christina, she's in first grade, and I have four years old, her name is Miss Eliza, and she's in preschool. Uh, I'm the working and also uh, studying mother, very busy mother, and I'm so thankful for this. And I want to start right now reading in Turkish. Böylece Mesih'ten gelen bir cesaret, sevgiden doğan bir teselli ve ruhla bir paydaşlık varsa, yürekten bir sevece- sevgi ve sevecenlik varsa, aynı düşüncede, sevgide, ruhta ve amaçta birleşerek sevincimi tamamlayın. Hiçbir şey bencil tutkularla ya da boş övünmeyle yapmayın. Her biriniz alçak gönüllülükle öbürünü kendinden üstün saysın. Yalnız kendi yararını değil, başkalarının yararını da gözetsin. Mesih İsa'daki düşünce sizde de olsun. Mesih Tanrı özüne sahip olduğu halde Tanrı'ya eşittiği sımsıkı sarılacak bir hak saymadı. Ama kul özünü alıp insan benzeyişinde doğarak oğlunu bir yana bıraktı. İnsan biçimine bürünmüş olarak ölüme, çarmıh üzerinde ölüme bile boyun eğip kendini alçalttı. Bunun içinde Tanrı onu pek çok yükseltti ve ona her adın üstünde olan adı bağışladı. Öyle ki İsa'nın adı anıldığında gökteki, yerdeki ve yer altındakilerin hepsi diz çöksün ve her dil baba tanrının yüceltilmesi için İsa Mesih'in Rab olduğunu açıkça söylesin. Amen. And I want to read in English right now. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming uh, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, early in 2020, uh, you know, six weeks or so into lockdowns and all of that, an interesting phenomenon swept the United States. Uh, People began to realize we were only happy with our houses because we spent most of our time not in them. Some of you are laughing because you, you went through this, uh, this, this angst of, well, now I'm in a place that's just not, uh, it doesn't feel good. And so the nation turned its lonely eyes to a four foot seven, 37 year old young lady from Japan. 
We needed joy. We needed magic. We needed Marie Kondo. Did you guys know who I'm talking about? No, because first hour, this whole thing bombed. They had no clue who I was talking about. If you somehow managed to miss the award-winning Netflix series, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, where you're supposed to discard everything that doesn't spark joy in your life, you, so, okay, some of you guys are like, yes, my wife has put me through this. You're lucky you stayed. <laughs> my, I, I watched the first episode, I changed the way I fold my clothes, and that was it. I lost interest after that. But for some people, like, this is a way of life. Super fans, right? Like everything else on the internet these days, there are super fans. In this case, they're called converts. Just let that sink in. Right? And so they dedicate their lives to living by the principles of the Marie Kondo method of decluttering your house and, you know, making sure you live in a, you know, a home of happiness all the time. Right? Now, imagine with me, if you can, because most of you seem to be unaware of this phenomenon. Imagine with me, you get, you're one of these converts, super fans of the Marie Kondo method, and you get the phone call that's going to change your life. It's Marie herself. And she called to say, hey, I'm going to come make my home with you. I know, right? Wow. No, if you're me, then you're like, great. She can come and clean everything up. Right? She loves messes. That's what I've heard because then they can get organized. But if you're a super fan, if you're a convert and you've been putting all these principles into practice, you're like, oh, no, no, no, no, no. I am going to do this exactly right so that when Marie gets here, like my house is going to be perfect. There's nothing in here that doesn't spark joy. Everything has its place. Everything is appropriately loved and adored and brings me happiness. You totally transform your life in order to, you know, live now to prepare for when Marie comes and makes her home with you. All right, fine. It's a dumb analogy. I should have asked you what color you'd paint your house if Philip Rivers was going to move in. I had to look that up to figure out who that was. <laughs> that's, the, that's the most sadness I'm going to get from you all today. Oh. He knows who Marie Kondo is, but not Philip Rivers. I even double-checked to make sure I said the right name so I could maintain eye contact without looking at my notes. <laughs> Here's the point. If someone you absolutely loved and respected and, and, and modeled your life after, you tried to live by their example and by what they taught, you almost sort of worshipped them. If they called you and said, I am coming to make my home with you, What would you do to get ready? What would you do to prepare in advance for their coming? So we've been spending the last three weeks and this week looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and in these verses he is pleading with the church to be unified, to be united. He's kind of ramped up to these verses, a few at the end of chapter one, where he's saying, like, I, I, I want you to stand firm side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. And then he goes into the, the rest of this beginning of chapter two, where he's like, okay, we're going to have to be united if we're going to make this happen. And in this call for unity, he has, he has called us to unity by looking at the big storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, 
recreation, right? There's a God who created everything right. It fell away from being right through our own actions. Jesus has come to redeem, to begin setting things right, and one day, ultimately, all things will be set right again. So we've been looking at this call to unity, because I think we can all agree if 2020 needs anything, it needs more unity. Uh, we've been looking at this call to unity through that big four-part gospel storyline. Because in this passage, Paul is saying, hey, I, need, I want you to be united around the gospel. That's the most important thing. And we've looked at creation, fall, redemption. This week, we're looking at recreation in the future. What we see in verses 9 through 11, as Paul says, you've got to be united because one day your king is coming back. And unity is one of the ways we prepare for that. So if we are going to come together around the gospel, that's what we've been talking about all of Advent, if we're going to come together around the gospel, then not only do we have to look backwards to creation or inwards to our own sinfulness or crosswards to what Jesus did for us, but we also have to look forwards to the end of the story. That's the bottom line we'll put up on the screen for you, that if we're going to come together, we have to look forward as we round out the full Bible storyline. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Philippians 2. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11, the second half of this hymn to Jesus that Paul is quoting. Uh, and as we walk through these three verses, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, I, I want to tackle two big questions. Two big questions. The first question is, well, where are we going? If we have to look forward, what are we looking forward to? Where are we going in this recreation? And the second big question is, can we live now in light of where we will be someday? Can we live today because of how we will live tomorrow? All right, so everybody's in Philippians 2. You're ready to jump in? Let's do it. We're going to start with the first question. It's the question that the text most readily answers. Where are we going in the recreation? And I want to start at verse 9. Verse 9 begins with the word, therefore. Now, this, this is the beginning of the, the second half of this hymn. 6, 7, and 8 were the first half of the song. 9, 10, and 11 are the second half. The first half was all about what Jesus himself did how he humbled himself, poured himself out, emptied himself out of heaven into the form of a human being, and even more than that, became obedient, became a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even an excruciating death, a death of the cross, excruciating. Therefore, verse 9, for this reason, for all of those things just mentioned in verses 6 and 7 and 8, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see that great reversal that happens. Uh, God in one decisive act does two things. First, he, he lifts Jesus from the, the depths of his self-humiliation, death on a cross, lifts him to the highest heights. The, the word there is that he, it, it's almost, he super dupers him, highly exalts Jesus, take, takes him from the very lowest to the very highest, and bestows on him a name a name that is higher than every other name. Now, in ancient thought, it's, it's important to note that a, a name is not just the way you distinguish between individuals. 
right? When you give somebody a name, it's supposed to reveal kind of their inner character or their true being or who they are. I worked for a couple years in Dallas with a a youth pastor named Carlos, Uh, but nobody called him Carlos. We all called him Bumper. Um, Not just because he was a youth pastor. Carlos was what his parents named him. Bumper was the name he got after hours on end of standing in the crib as a baby just smacking his head on the railing. So people called him Bumper because he was like head first through any obstacle, <laughs> just getting it out of the way. It's, it's a name that meant something. It reveals true character, inner being. So God bestows on Jesus a, a name, or you could think almost a, a description, a title, a position. God gives to Jesus the name that is above every other name. And it's not the name Jesus, by the way. He already had that name. The name that God gives him, the name that is above every other name, well, what name can you think of that's above every other name? Yeah, it's his own name. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, you're running up to it, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that, here it is, Jesus Christ is... Lord. That's the name. Now, in in the Greek that this hymn and this letter was written in, uh, the word behind Lord is the word kyrios. Okay, say it with me, kyrios. Kyrios, great, you got it. If you're trying to spell it, it's like curious, but with a K and no U. Um, I don't know if that helped, but... (laughs) Just sound it out. Kyrios, and and in, in like average Greek, it means as little as like sir or master, you might say. But in religious Greek, kyrios is the word that was chosen to translate when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. Kyrios is the word used to translate Yahweh, Lord. Kyrios, in Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh became I am Kyrios. That is my name. I share my glory with no one else, he says. I am Kyrios. So when God gives to Jesus the name, his name, the name Kyrios, he is giving him the highest possible honor. And saying, this one, this concrete human being, specific person, Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, he is Yahweh, Lord. Kyrios. And one day, verses 10 and 11 tells us, one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue, meaning every person, will openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Kyrios, is Yahweh, is Lord, that Jesus is God. That's where we're going in the big story of the Bible. That's the recreation. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. 
Right, verse 9, therefore, for all the stuff we said before, God has, because of all that, God has highly exalted Jesus, given him the name that is above every name, his own name, Yahweh, the covenant name, Kyrios, so that, here's, here's the result, here's what is going to happen, so that in honor of the name which Jesus possesses, okay, I'm paraphrasing to bring out the point here, in honor of the name which Jesus possesses, every knee will bow. Keep in mind that bowing or kneeling in prayer isn't the normal, um, it's not the normal prayer posture in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Standing is. You stand to pray. Uh, people would only kneel to pray if they were in dire circumstances, abject need, or if the, the majesty and glory of God was so overwhelming that they just physically couldn't stand. So to say that every knee will bow, and of course by every he means every, in heaven, on earth, under the earth. To say that every knee will bow is that every rational being will submit to the authority of Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Lord. Every rational being will submit to, will kneel before, will subject, them, subject themselves to Jesus as king. Some gladly and willingly, those who had and have already subjected themselves to him in this life. Others, not gladly, not willingly, but will kneel in the face of a force that they cannot resist. Every knee will bow and every tongue, so again, every, you know, every rational being will confess, will openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, Kyrios. Uh, if you're the kind of person who writes in your Bible, I would encourage you to put uh, quote marks around Jesus Christ is Lord. Put quote marks around it. Most scholars agree that this statement, those four words, Jesus Christ is Lord, it is probably the earliest Christian creed that we have. You know, a creed is a, a statement of belief. Like, here's what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You know, that's the beginning of a creed with a lot more detail to, than this one, but this is probably the earliest Christian creed. Jesus Christ is Lord. With everything that a Jewish, uh, a Jewish person would bring into that statement, Jesus Christ is Kyrios, is Yahweh. Everything we believe about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God who's faithful to his covenant promises, the God who is compassionate, the God who judges, the God who makes a way for his people. All of that, uh, the, this hymn is telling us, like all of that comes, comes to this point of, of this radical new confession that Jesus Christ, the, the person, the human being Jesus who comforted the sick and healed the lame, who taught who was crucified, who was killed, who was buried, who rose again. That one, that person, Jesus, is the, the God of all of the stories, the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh, the faithful covenant God. And at the end of days, when everything is finally set right, when it's recreated as it was meant to be in the beginning, we will finally and fully be reunited, reunified around the throne 
of the King Jesus, Jesus Christ the Lord. That's where we're going at the end of days. That's where we're going. That's why to come together we have to look forward to see that future reality and ask ourselves, are we willing to live today in light of how we will live tomorrow? Are we willing to live today what will be true tomorrow? Because we're not there right now. We're not there right now. We are certainly not at the point where every knee bows before Jesus or every tongue confesses uh, the, this creedal belief that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? That may be the reality on heaven. It's not the reality on earth. It's not our reality. So we are, we're in between. We're in between the third and fourth parts of the story. We're in between the redemption that Jesus has already accomplished. He has been exalted, but we're not yet at the, the recreation. Jesus is king when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. We are, we are in the tension of the in-between, which is actually the point of this season of Advent, to live in that tension, to look back to Jesus' first Advent, His coming as our Savior, as a baby in Bethlehem, and to look forward to His second coming, His second Advent, as our King, the King before whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's why we, we light the fourth candle of our Advent candles. That's why we attempt to light the fourth candle of the Advent candles, because we live in this tension. Jesus has been exalted and is not yet universally worshipped, which means we are still in the time when we get to bring along others with us to willingly, gladly, voluntarily worship this king. At the end of days, all will bow their knee before Jesus, some willingly and some unwillingly. And the hope of God is that all will do so willingly. The mission of the church is that, is that more and more will do so willingly. That's our call right now as people who live in light of that day that is coming is to invite and bring along others into that worship to share with others, to invite others into this story of the gospel, of the good news of the God who made everything the way it was supposed to be, but we broke it, couldn't fix it ourselves. He fixed it and invites us to be part of that eternal fix. We get to be part of it now. Brings us to the second question. You know, the first was, okay, what, where are we going in this new creation? The second is, are we willing to live now, live today, in light of what will be true tomorrow or in the future on that last day? Can we live now as if we were citizens of then? Can we live in the kingdoms of this world as citizens of the kingdom that is to come? It's, it's definitely easier to live, you know, as citizens of this kingdom in this kingdom. 
but that's the kind of thing that rips apart a church. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks when Paul's like, okay, selfish ambition, vainglory. Come on, guys. The, the, the watchword of the day is humility here. Consider others more important than yourselves. The unity that Paul calls us to, the living in light of the kingdom that is to come, is certainly much harder than just doing what comes naturally. So we each have to ask ourselves, not just can I or should I, but, but will I live today in light of what is to come tomorrow? And your answer to that question depends a lot on who and what you think Jesus is. If Jesus is a, a guidance counselor, or a friend who gives good advice, or a good example to follow, or the ancient, equiv- uh, the ancient moral equivalent of Marie Kondo, then great, good advice, some helpful tips for living. I can see how some of it might apply to my life. I should try to be a little nicer. And then you sort of evaluate it and take what you want from it and apply that to your life, right? And if it doesn't work, well, wasn't, you know, just doesn't fit me. On the other hand, if, if Jesus is a king, if Jesus Christ is Lord, is Yahweh, is God, if he's Kyrios, then it's not really up to us to decide, is it? not really up to us to evaluate if what he says is the right way to do things is real. Does that really fit me? Not really. I'm not, you know. It's up to us to submit, to bow before him, to remind ourselves, wait, who is Lord? Jesus is the one who was completely obedient That's verses 6, 7, and 8. And God has lifted him up so that he will be the one that is completely obeyed. That's verses 9, 10, and 11. So if Jesus is your king, uh, then here's a few ideas of maybe how that works itself out into your life right now. And what we're doing by by asking this question or, or doing this exercise, by the way, is just what Paul goes on to do in verses 12 and and later, you know, it's like, okay, in light of all this, uh, my beloved, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Think through the implications of what you believe, what you're saying when you say Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's think about how that applies to your life, like what that means in the way you live. So if Jesus is your king, just a, a couple of things here that ways we could think this out in our lives. First is to ask yourself, if Jesus were my king, what would he have me do? And I know that's vague, so let's, let's bring it into a specific... Just, I want you to think of a specific situation or circumstance, uh, a division that you're experiencing right now. You can probably close your eyes and picture somebody with whom you, you used to be more closely aligned, now you're further apart, or you can think of... Um, leaders who are going in a direction that you don't want to go in and you don't agree with what they're doing, or you can think of teachers uh, who at first you really resonated with them and now not so much, whatever, there's a thousand different, there's one, at least one for each of us, I'm sure. 
some division. Think of this situation, this circumstance that you're going through right now, and ask yourself, if Jesus were my king, what would he have me do? What would he have me do with this person, this situation, this circumstance? If Jesus were my king and he were really asking me to do these things that Paul writes about in here, have the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord, one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but in humility consider the needs of others as greater than your own, what would King Jesus have me do? That's question number one. Second question is, if, if Jesus is king in your life, then what are, what are his essentials? What are his essentials, the things that he says you, you have to agree on in order to follow him as king, right? Because there are certainly some true things about this king Jesus that we have to agree on, otherwise we're talking about different Jesuses, Jesus, whatever the plural is. We're talking about different a different thing. So we have to agree here if we're following him together. But there are some other things that we don't have to agree on in order to both be following King Jesus. So what, what are your essentials? What are the things you say? Yet yeah, this is absolutely core to what it means when I say Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king. And what's, what's not so essential? Because we, we all have a list, whether we realize it or not. And the question is, does our list match his list? Is what we say is essential also what he says is essential? So what are your essentials, your non-essentials? Now, for, for all of us, I think there's a, there's sort of a, a, a fundamental, like, base layer of our identity or our, our perception of ourselves that is the thing around which we try to, to get the most unity. You know, if, if, you're, if you're going off in a particular direction that, say, your, your parents or, or friends or other ones who care about you don't agree with, you go off in this direction and the natural tendency is to say, well, I'm going to go find people who will affirm that direction. I, I need unity around this. I need to feel like there's a, a group behind me that's that's supporting me in this. We all have sort of a, a fundamental layer around which anybody who agrees with us, with us there is fine, and everyone who disagrees with us there is not fine. I'll let you think of your own specific, how that works out in your life. For us, some of that is, one of those sort of fundamental levels is family. Right, it's like, okay, I know you're annoying me, but we both came from the same parents. Like, that's enough to keep us together. And, and we, have, we have a particular family that we, we actually used to be aligned on a whole lot more than that. Um, we were part of the same church. We were part of the, held some of the same beliefs. We thought the same things about Jesus. And these close members of our family have, have stepped away from all of that. So it's harder for us to, to be unified because there's so much we want to argue about. <laughs> right? Try to convince them of important things, good things about what it means to follow King Jesus, but they've, they've walked away from that. And so we've had to decide proactively, and my wife is way better at this than I am. They moved to a different state, so I'm happy to just sort of forget they exist, but that's my, it's not the right thing to do. I recognize that. Um, 
she's a whole lot better at saying, no, we want to have a relationship with them, not just an ongoing argument. Right, those are different things, even though some of us confuse ongoing arguments as a relationship. Because when it comes to the family, like that's the core thing that, that unifies us. And so we overlook many other things, many other disagreements, simply to, to maintain the unity of that relationship. Also with the hope that someday we can help them come back to King Jesus. Here's what I'm getting at. If we do that with family, and I know some of you do that with your own families as well, it'd be a whole lot easier not to go to Thanksgiving because of who's there, but you do it anyway. If we do that with our our families, can we do that with our church family? Can we do that with the family that Paul is calling to be standing firm, side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel? Because if, if Jesus were to call and say, hey, I'm, I'm coming to make my home with you, or better yet, with us, with Faith Church, those of us here and watching online, if Jesus were to call and say, hey, I'm going to come and, and make this church my home church, what would we do to get ready? sit back and say, oh, finally he's going to come and everyone out there will finally know that I'm right. What would we do to get ready? So that when Jesus came and made his home here with us, he found brothers and sisters that were standing side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel, of the same mind, having the same spirit, same love, probably a long list of things we would do to get ready. And if we're we're willing to do that, or at least entertain that on the thought experiment that Jesus might come make this his church, how about we do that because one day we'll be kneeling next to each other in front of the king and saying together in unison and in unity, Jesus Christ is Lord. What, else, what is there for us to divide over if that's what unites us? Let's pray. Father, in your Son, Jesus, and in his kingship, in his kingdom rule, in this proclamation that the king is come and is coming, you give us the only thing that is strong enough to bind us together, despite all of our differences, all of our disagreements, all of our disunities, all of our diversities. You have always and continuously called the church to unite around this one thing.
that in your son you are making all things new, starting with us. May the light that shines from the kingdom of heaven, our eternal home, illumine the way forward for us that we may walk as citizens of the kingdom to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.